I think I was so driven by what it takes to get the job done. I had a pretty good business plan because I had that background. The first thing that was most daunting was trying to get some money. You know, uh, Lynn and I sold our house and car and everything in Vancouver. And, you know, it doesn't sound like a lot of cash today, but you know, you got to remember since 1975. But I think we had $45,000 cash at the, when everything was cashed in. On my pro forma, on my business plan, I needed 600000 Hey, welcome to the Roots and Builders podcast, brought to you by McKillican International, North America's largest family-owned building materials wholesaler. This is a podcast dedicated to learning about interesting people, places, and finding some inspiration along the way. On today's premiere episode, I sit down with Gary McKillican in his home outside of Edmonton, Alberta. We learn about his humble beginnings and how he went on to be a successful leader in the wholesale building supply industry. He shares how McKillican got its start and some of his lessons learned in his 50 years in business. I hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening. Exciting to have a great guest on, Gary McKillican. We're going to learn a lot about uh, his history and how he went from uh, some humble beginnings to one of the largest wholesale distributors in North America. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Chris. Thanks. It's good to be here. So I thought we'd just start off. I know... Um, you know, before you got into the building industry as a teenager, you were working up in northern Canada in a small town, Uranium City, northern Saskatchewan. Why don't you just sort of tell us how did you end up getting up there and what was sort of the ways of how you got your start there? Yeah, well, it was interesting. You know, I didn't uh, I didn't have a lot of education right then. I, I left school early before I graduated. So that was, you know, a combination of issues, mostly lack of interest in, you know, being a serious student on my part, but, uh, you know, a few other things as well. But uh, I was looking at, you know, what the opportunities might be, you know, without the education and obviously, like most people, looking for the best return. And I saw an ad in the Edmonton Journal, and it was advertising for mill workers up in Uranium City, Saskatchewan. And a company called Eldorado Mining and Refining had a uranium mine up there, which is a government-owned facility. Incidentally, on the ad, they were asking for, you know, specifically people that could play hockey. Came to find out later when I got up there that there was a fierce rivalry between the mill team which was, you know, the labor workers. There was 1,500 of those guys. And the management group, they had a team as well. Every Saturday night, there was a hockey game. And the guys that worked in the mill mostly lived in camp and gambled quite a bit. And so these hockey games became sort of a, not only a fierce rivalry, but uh, there was a lot of money exchanged hands. So I made as much money playing hockey as I did, you know, working in the mill. So that was kind of the way it all got started. And then, you know, later on in the tenure, I switched over to the management team because they offered me more money and also a raise in in position in the mill. So you kind of start to learn how things work in the real world. It's up there a couple of years. Instead of coming out with, you know, like most guys my age had, you know, school debts, I came out with uh, $10,000 cash and uh, uh, felt pretty good starting things off. So that was what about sixty four or something or uh, actually that was uh, went up there in sixty five and then uh, came out of there in uh, just just early sixty seven. Oh wow! So you, when you finished the mine, you ended up coming back to Edmonton. Yeah, came back to Edmonton. Uh, 
you know, I was born and raised in Saskatchewan, but I'd, my mom and dad were separated, and I lived with uh, my mother, and we had moved to Edmonton in 1959. So it was coming back, you know, home, so to speak. Prior to going up, I'd met the love of my life, you know, uh, who eventually became my wife, and we got married during the time I was up there. She came up to Uranium City, and uh, she was there the last year with me that I was up there. So when you guys got back from Uranium City and you ended up in uh, Edmonton, did you get into the building supply industry then right away, or did you have some other jobs? You know, I didn't. Maybe it was my background or whatever, but I always had this drive to, you know, make something out of myself. And, uh, you know, without the, you know, start of a good education, I think I felt even a little bit more perplexed about that. So when I came back, I was just looking for, you know, a good way of uh, being able to look after my responsibilities, my wife and our young daughter, then Stacy. So initially, I got a job working for Canadian National Railways. My dad had been a truck driver uh, uh, most of his life, and so on, from being a young kid onwards, I uh, was quite used to and familiar with the cab of a truck. and. You know, by the time I was 11 or 12, I was sitting behind the driver's seat with my dad on the other seat, you know, shifting gears on an 18-wheeler. And uh, so that's what I got a job doing with CN, is driving a truck. And uh, I did that for about a year. And then I uh, went to work for what was uh, at the time Lynn's brother-in-law and, and sister. He had a business wholesaling uh, bolts and nut supplies. And uh, so I worked there for about a year and really enjoyed that and kind of got in the swing everything going on in Edmonton. But I knew that wasn't a long-term career. So somewhere in there, I'd put an ad in the paper looking for something a little better and kind of interesting. You know, I didn't have the education again, so... The ad I put in the paper, I still recall it quite well. Went down to the Edmonton Journal and uh, spent $342. I remember the ad cost, a little square box ad in the uh, classified section and uh, just said a little bit about myself. Wasn't too worldly in those days, so I probably embellished myself a little more. I said I was, you know, aggressive and wanted to learn and anxious to get in a position that would give me an opportunity for growth. And uh, so that was kind of where I got to start. You know, as a result of that ad, you know, I remember going down the first couple of days to the journal to see if there was any responses, and I was pretty disappointed there weren't any. And then the lady behind the desk, third day I came down, she must have felt a little sorry for me because she remembered me and said, oh, come on over here. And I went over, and she pulled this shoebox out from under the thing, and she said, these are all responses to your ad. So there was about uh, 60 odd responses by the third day. One of the ads was, or responses was from a company called Fife Smith Hardwood. I just liked the way the, uh, you know, the response was written. And uh, the guy basically said, uh, in paraphrasing, but he said, if you're as good as you think you are, I need to talk to you. So anyway, I went down and his name was Keith Guerin and he tended to be a uh, quite a character person and ran a hardwood lumber wholesale distribution company in Edmonton and uh, ended up taking a job there in the warehouse. So that's how I got my start. Well, what year would have that been when you started at Five Smith then? Yeah, that was probably early 68, you know, when I started there. Did, uh, did you kind of know much about like uh, that industry at the time or was this a total random 
So hack circumstance that you got the response. Yeah, the industry itself, Chris, I didn't know uh, really anything about it. I knew, I thought I knew a little bit about lumber products and so on and uh, very little. And the reason for that is I always enjoyed, you know, shop classes in school and, you know, really uh, was interested in the different species of wood and things like that. And I'm not sure exactly why. Not really a hands-on type guy, but uh, I did enjoy that. So that was part of it. But the main reason that job attracted me is there was no sell behind it. Somebody wasn't trying to sell me to become a, you know, shoe salesman, you know, trainee or something. Uh, they said right out front, Mr. Guerin said, you know, look, if you're interested in this job and we offer it to you, you'll be out working in the warehouse for a year. You know, we'll see how you do out there. And if you... If you do well based on, you know, the positionings opening up, we would give you an opportunity to go in on the order desk if you deserved it. So I just like that progression. I like the honesty that he had. And he had quite a character and sense of humor as well. So I was, you know, attracted to the position. Neat. So some of your earliest jobs at Five, you started really in the warehouse, worked your way up. To, did you end up, I'm assuming, getting onto the order desk? Yeah. Eventually, uh, I was in a warehouse about a year and then an opening came up in the order desk, and uh, Mr. Guerin and his assistant, Mr. Johnson, gave me an opportunity to go on the desk. And uh, so that was kind of the start. And then I was on there about six months when the company was bought out by Solder Industries out of Vancouver. I remember uh, Mr. Solder, Bill Solder, coming through and, uh, you know, had a meeting with Keith Guerin and you know, they went back to the airport and dropped him off. And the next day I had a meeting with Mr. Guerin. He said, you know, uh, told me what had happened with the acquisition, but that they wanted to reduce the staff and that I was the new guy in the desk. So they were going to give me an opportunity to go back in the warehouse or uh, they had a branch in Regina, Saskatchewan and needed a salesman there. Really couldn't find anybody that was interested in going to Saskatchewan. And so based on if I was interested in putting my hand up for that, and then secondarily, the manager in Regina for them, Ron Smalley, if he was willing to take me on, that that could be an option for me. So obviously, uh, I didn't tell Mr. Guerin, but I was elated for an opportunity to go to Saskatchewan because I grew up there and I thought it was the greatest place on the planet. So I got an airplane, first airplane, well, second airplane ride, actually, because I had to fly up to Uranium City, but first jet air airplane ride and went to Saskatchewan and met Ron Smalley. And all Ron said to me is, look, you know, you're young, you're green, you don't know much, but if you uh, listen and learn and you work hard, I'll give you a shot. So I committed to him that I would do that. And so that... Uh, Got me on the road as a salesman at a pretty young age. I wow. was 20 then. Uh, so that's kind of the very beginnings. Did you feel you had a natural talent in sales? Like, was it something that came fairly oh, naturally? Wow. <laughs> you know, it was really quite the contrary. I knew the opportunity was there, so I wanted to give it every effort that I could. But I still remember, you know, going up to Yorkton, Saskatchewan. The very first call I made was on Revelstoke Lumber, a retail lumberyard, and I walked in, I had my Five Smith catalog under my arm and just kind of walking around looking at the moldings and stuff and trying to work up enough courage to ask them to see the manager. And uh, this guy came over to me and he had a suit on and 
you know, so he's out in New York and I figure he's either a salesman or the manager and turned out to be a salesman from a competitive company, McMillan Blodell, and introduced himself. As, uh, he said, hey, my name's Sid Stillwell. Uh, you know, I guess I looked the part. In those days, we, if you're a salesman, you all wore a suit. And I had the catalog, so he, I told him who I was and told him this was my first call ever and I was scared to death. And anyway, he called the manager over and introduced me to the manager and said, this guy's from Fife Smith Hardwood and, uh, you know, it's his first call. It'd be pretty nice if you give him an order. So uh, anyways, I ended up walking out of there with an order of three-quarter inch ribbon grain mahogany plywood. I was pretty proud of myself. I thought this sales job isn't really quite as tough as I thought, but uh, that was Monday. By Friday, I got back. That was still the only order I had. So <laughs> I realized I ever better find this Sid or uh, learn how to do some selling. So yeah, no, it wasn't a natural for sure. I know you worked your way up through the ranks into solder, and I know you. That, uh, how many years from, uh, I guess, those early days in Saskatchewan to before you got into sort of more the corporate side of, of solder, and you were buying hardwoods and stuff for them. Well, I worked in, uh, you know, Saskatchewan originally, as we talked about, you know, Regina, and then I got to Saskatoon, and strangely enough, back to Saskatchewan, Regina again to manage the whole province. Then was uh, promoted to the Edmonton, Alberta uh, location as uh, regional manager. And then I left there in 1975. Uh, Sauter gave me an opportunity to come to Vancouver as their first marketing manager for the company. So I went from working out in the industrial area and warehousing to working in downtown Vancouver in Bentall too on the 28th floor or whatever it was. And, uh, you know, surrounded by a lot of really smart people and uh, was given another opportunity by the company. And, uh, you know, it had a lot to do with my, you know, growth as an individual and a business person and so forth. So, uh, so 75, uh, 1975 was when I came up there. And of course, I started with them in 68. So that was, you know, about seven years. So when, uh, when did you end up getting, you were you spent a lot of time down in sort of the hardwood zones of the United States and stuff, sort of what period of that would have that, would have that been? Solder themselves weren't as much hardwood as the company they'd acquired, which was Fife Smith Hardwood. Solder had a product lineup that was more addressing the retail, the moldings and doors and so forth. And uh, Fife Smith Hardwoods, which was a division, was more, more hardwood lumber, panel products and so forth. They had a gentleman up at corporate, his name was Brian Cassidy, a uh, great guy who knew the lumber business very well and uh, had been buying the lumber for Fife Smith Hardwoods for many years. And anyway, he kind of took me under his wing. And after uh, six months or so, I became the hardwood buyer. And I traveled the mills from Quebec, you know, all the way down through the northeast and into the Appalachian country, uh, southeast and then all the way down to the Gulf. Called on a lot of really spectacular mills. I mean, the Fife Smith Hardwoods had been in the business since 1905 when John Fife Smith started the business out in Vancouver. And uh, so they had really uh, amazing relationships with the best males out there and the Syrianis and the ITWs and, you know, Northwest Hardwoods and in the West as well as uh, Midwest Hardwoods and many others. And so I, I had the advantage of being introduced. We were a major customer, so people were pretty 
kind to me as a rookie. And uh, uh, looking back on my career, that was one of the most enjoyable things, you know, that I had the opportunity to do. We're approaching on 1978 when the year you started McKillican. So in those sort of years or two, I guess you were in Vancouver, was the entrepreneurial spirit starting to sort of peek in? Were you thinking of looking to try to go branch on your own or were you thinking, when did you start sort of putting the idea together that, hey, I could maybe have my own company doing this? Well, that's a really interesting question because uh, I think the answer I'm going to give you will be uh, a little bit shocking. I've never ever in those days felt like uh, I never felt like I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I never had this drive to go out and, you know, kind of do my own thing. What was driving me more than that was, you know, I'd worked in the uh, branch operations with Sauter and Fife Smith Hardwoods for a number of years. Fife Smith eventually became Ellswood, by the way, E-L-S-W-O-O-D, which was E.L. Sauter's initials attached to wood, E.L. Sauter, Ellswood. And uh, so I was really involved in the Ellswood side. But the the reality was that I'd worked in the branches, very involved in, uh, you know, the marketplace, the customers. I found early on that I had kind of a natural tendency for understanding things like market size and market share. I think part of what propelled me in the Sauter group was I'd, you know, been fortunate enough to have good teams in all the branches I'd gone to, and we'd been able to grow our market share probably, you know, a little bit more than most other branches, so you kind of became a little bit visible. But to the to the point of entrepreneurship, it was more that I just kind of missed that action of being in the branches, you know, and being in the marketplace and being able to put my own business plan together for that market. Whereas at corporate, it was a little more uh, higher level overview. Uh, you didn't dig into the, you know, specifics so much, particularly because I wasn't in sales. I was in marketing. Marketing is to influence sales, of course, but, you know, not digging right down into the customer like if I was a sales manager or something. So I missed that portion of it. And I just found that, you know, with the uh, difference of working downtown, you know, it was a whole different scenario than working out in the industrial area. I think that was more it. I wanted to get back to where, quote, you know, the action was and uh, didn't feel like going backwards in the organization was my best option. So my first thing was really to, you know, go find something else. And I actually resigned once I reached that conclusion. But I didn't know what I was going to go to. And uh, strangely enough, you know, when they said, well, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know. And they said, well, why don't, why don't you stay until you figure that out? And uh, I stayed six more months. And then <laughs> one of my mentors there was Murray McKenzie, who is a wonderful gentleman. He's Bill Sauter's brother-in-law and married Bill Sauter's sister. So he was, you know, part owner of the company and he had been very good to me and spent a lot of time with me on background and so forth. And Murray came into my office one day and said, well, you know, what, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I still feel like, you know, being, you know, uh, I still remember getting a pay stub, for example, it said, uh, this was, you got to remember, this was, you know, 1975. And I got a pay stub one day that said, you retire on, you know, October 15th, you know, 2000 and, you know, 15 or something. And I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, I'm going to be at corporate, you know, for all that time. That's I think that was actually the trigger point where I said, I don't think so. <laughs> so anyways, I just said to Murray, uh, 
you know, it's probably time I moved on. I got to figure out what I'm going to do. And so uh, Lynn and I, my wife and I, went down to San Diego for a few days and sat on the beach. And, you know, Lynn said, well, you know, you've been in building materials and distribution. Why don't you do that? And I'd never really thought about, you know, doing that and competing. But I thought about it, you know, uh, Saturday, Sunday. I came back Monday morning and said, I'm leaving. <laughs> you know, I'm going to go and uh, open up a little building material distribution company in Edmonton, Alberta. So... Ah. I chose Edmonton because I'd managed that branch once and, and knew the customer base here. So that was kind of, you know, like I said, it was more like stumbling into it. I didn't have this entrepreneurial drive. Once I got into it, though, I mean, uh, I'll tell you, the entrepreneurial uh, spirit and uh, need really kicked in. And uh, so that was a different story. But that was, you know, before I, before I decided to leave. Did you find, I mean, at that point... Uh I guess before you opened the doors and you were just getting everything up and ready, and that's a probably one of the biggest risks someone's taken in their lives. Was that something that you found you felt pretty comfortable with right away, or was it sort of a uh, did you learn yeah. learn learn stuff about yourself that? Well, it's a combination of all those things. I think at the beginning, um, there's a fair sense of naivety, you know, in terms of what's all involved. Like I'd worked, uh, unlike a lot of guys that start business where they start small and work into their own business, I started with this great big company, and gigantic company. They're almost a billion-dollar company when I was there, and uh, well past that now. But uh, that said, it was a big organization, and then I went to being this, you know, uh, uh, small guy, very small, uh, one-man operation, and uh, uh I think I was so driven by what it takes to get the job done. I had a pretty good business plan because I had that background that Sauter, uh, you know, fostered with me. And uh, But the first thing that was most daunting was trying to get some money. Uh, you know, uh, Lynn and I sold our house and car and everything in Vancouver. And, you know, it doesn't sound like a lot of cash today, but, you know, you got to remember 1975, but... I think we had $45,000 cash at the, when everything was cashed in. And uh, on my pro forma, on my business plan, I needed 600000 So here's this, you know, 29-year-old kid walking down the streets of Edmonton, knocking on bankers' doors with forty-five grand and a business plan wanting to borrow 600000 And uh, I got a lot of people listened to me, and uh, a lot of people complimented the business plan. Uh, but uh, nobody was really ready to, you know, step up. And uh, I had a buddy that was in the banking business. I'd played ball with him back in Regina. He was with TD Bank then, and, uh, you know, I was with Elswood in those days. And uh, so uh, I phoned him. Derek Roos was his name, and he said, uh, have you ever thought of going to uh, Bank of British Columbia? And... Uh, I said, I never even heard of them. And he said, well, that's because they're brand new in Edmonton. But uh, he said they're a division of Hong Kong Bank. And he said they're pretty aggressive and they're looking, you know, for customers. So I did go there. And uh, lo and behold, by the time I told my story to the Edmonton guy, he said, well, I can't approve this because leverage is too much. But if you're willing to get on an airplane, go to Vancouver. I'll uh, recommend they listen to your story out there. So I did, and the rest was kind of history. They lent me the 600 grand. I'm sure they held their breath, but uh, 
anyway, uh, we had a short year end that first year and came back six months later and we'd made uh, after tax $60,000 in that six months. So they were pretty uh, happy with everything and we kind of moved forward with them from there. Wow. So when, as soon as you guys opened up, you were, you were I guess, quote-unquote, successful? Uh, not not really. I mean, obviously, you know, it takes a little while to ramp up, but, but about the fourth or fifth month, I could see that, that you know, there was a tipping point uh, in the business. And I think a lot of that was because I had managed that branch earlier for Five Smiths slash Ellswood, and uh, they... Uh, customer base knew who I was personally and then when you're you know the new kid on the block I used to go out in the morning with my suit on and make the calls and as soon as I got enough what I considered orders because uh, I was the only employee at that time besides Lynn uh, I'd go back to the warehouse I was renting and I'd lay the order up and put them on this old $500 truck I bought and I'd deliver them to the same guy I took the order from that morning later in the afternoon and I always make a point of going in and saying, hey, yeah, I got your stuff here. And I think, you know, there we sell a lot of customers, cabinet shops and millworks and so forth that are small businessmen themselves. And I think they identified that. And I think they kind of become my rooting section. In the meantime, a lot of competitors were saying, you know, no matter what, you know, McKillican quotes you, we'll, we'll meet it or do better. Well, a lot of these small guys thought that was, they were defending me by, you know, shun, shunning off that opportunity. So I think that was part of what created this tipping point. But uh, by the fourth, fifth month, I was getting pretty busy. And then I had to hire a couple people and, you know, kind of got us started. So those first five months, was this you and Lynn? Yeah. Yeah. We did, uh, you know, everything you do in a business, it was like kind of running the corner grocery store. You got to order the material, you know, put it away when it comes in be behind the till when somebody comes in and you know deliver it when you have to and so that was uh i mean it was uh it wasn't stressful i mean it felt like it was just the natural things to do but you know getting involved in collections and credit and you know all those things obviously i'd driven the forklift and driven trucks and done that so those things weren't a mystery but some of the other things were new to me you know to your earlier question about anxieties and so on I will admit there were a few times when I just stopped for a few minutes, might have been on a weekend or something, and I'd be lying in bed looking up at the ceiling at 2 o'clock in the morning. And I remember asking myself once or twice if I really knew what I was doing, but uh, that didn't last long, so kept going. So when you hired the first couple guys, you, they were more into the warehouse, so you could focus more on out, being out in sales? Uh, one was the warehouse, and then one was uh, in the office to help Lynn answer the phones. Yeah, so it allowed me to be out, you know, on calls more. Did you have any kind of moments where you thought the company w could be bigger than what it was, or were you still at that time just kind of thinking this is a pretty good setup I got going on here with the one branch? Or well, again, I think part of it's you know coming from a larger organization, you know, so you've got, you know, as Gretzky said, you know, you get to see the whole ice a little more, and I don't have uh, all of the attributes uh, in a uh, strong way, but a few few of the things I think I am strong at, one of them is the perspective side of things. 
always had the perspective of, you know, the market size. You know, I can remember walking down Jasper Avenue in Edmonton and seeing Hudson's Bay in one corner and Sears on another corner and Woolworth's on another corner. And, you know, you walked into all the stores, they essentially sold all the same things. And I always used to wonder how, how did they all stay in business, you know, but, you know, they all have their niche and then the market itself is significantly large to absorb enough from three or more competitors in that example. But uh, so I always had that kind of notion. And uh, giving an example, the first year was that six months that I, I talked about earlier. I think our scales in that six months were 550000 And like I said, we made a, you know, a net after tax of about 50000 on that. Margins were better than they are today, I can guarantee you that. But that said, the next year, I actually, I could have taken the 550 and said, well, you know, if we can do 10% better, or, you know, if I was really going for a huge, big, hairy, audacious goal, I could have said 20% better. But instead, I looked at the market, and of course, I had some background knowledge of what uh, some of the other competitors in town had done. So I actually uh, budgeted for $2 million in the second year. So that was four times what I'd done in the, you know, the first shortened year. That was based on gross market share. So I was saying, okay, you know, I based, basically thought I had you know, somewhere around 4% market share and I was going to you know, try to go for something between 15 and 20% in the second year. I realized I had to put some more resources in place to do that. So I was back knocking on the bank's door to get more inventory and, you know, looking at some more people and so forth. Anyway, the net result, actually, at the end of year two, we did $2.8 million. So we'd gone from 550 to 2.8. And then just carrying that whole, you know, philosophy of market size and share through. In year three, we did over $6 million. And by year five, we were well well into the 10 to $15 million area. And we've done that throughout the history of the company, and uh, it's augured very well for our growth. Did you have a idea that you were going to do anything you wanted to do differently than you were, you know, coming up through Fife Smith and Ellswood and, and Sauter? Did you have a think, uh, or did you just kind of copy that, what you knew from there, or did you have anything different that you wanted to sort of bring to the market? I wish I could say I had a longer-term plan, but, I mean, my first initial plan was all about hardwood lumber and panel products from a product perspective. After about year one, I started to realize that the company's future probably needed to have a pretty good mix of branded products, as many as possible exclusive, and then as many more restricted. And then I should say, too, that part of this whole thing, just trying to find companies that were of high quality. You know, I'd worked for Sauter, which was a very high-quality company with good people. And in the vendors that we were searching out at McKillican, I was looking for those attributes because I missed that, and I felt like I needed that kind of mentorship as well. One of the sort of more milestones of the earlier days of McKillican, you end up picking up Wilson Art as a... Speaking of having one of those lamb or you know brands, did that? How did that all come about? And sort of were, were they uh, taking a bit of a risk to sort of give it to you at that time? Yeah, that was an interesting story because uh, I was actually down in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, on a lumber buying trip. You know, as as my uh, as the owner of my own company, calling on a company called Babcock Lumber, uh, which were in a suburb of Pittsburgh called Swissville, and uh, 
the president of the company at Babcock at the time was a gentleman called uh, by the name of Bill Eldridge. His English heritage and English accent and so forth. And I'd met him before when I was still with buying, doing the buying for Fife Smith. But uh, anyway, I was with Bill and uh, uh, lunch time came up and he they they had uh, six mills, but they also had some distribution. And he said, would you like to go buy one of our distribution places and see it? And I said, yeah, that'd be great. So we did. We went by and you know, warehouse tour, and they had lumber and panel products, pretty much what I expected to see. But then they had laminate uh, there, and uh, I saw the Wilson Art chipboard up on the end of the laminate rack, and I said, Wilson Art? I said, I haven't heard of that. What is it? And uh, he said, well, that's a company from Temple, Texas. They started in 1956, and they've uh, been doing a fantastic job, and they're really uh, given Formica a run. Uh, as a matter of fact, he said in most places they've actually taken over market share. And I said, well, that's fantastic. I'd already phoned, you know, the two Canadian mills, which was Formica and Arborite, and they were very kind, but it was more like, uh, you know, uh, don't call us, we'll call you. And uh, so I said to Bill Eldridge, I said, could you introduce me to these guys? So when we got back from lunch, we were sitting in his office. He picked up the phone, called the president of Wilson Art, uh, Bobby Dillon at the time, and said, got a young guy here that, you know, comes from Western Canada and interested in your product. So handed the phone across the desk to me and we chatted for a few minutes. And, you know, a couple of weeks later, a big tall guy out of Seattle named Ron Wood came up to Edmonton and uh, he was the regional manager for Wilson Art. And they had a distributor in Vancouver who had just expanded a small operation in Edmonton. And uh, so, you know, it's a little bit of that, you know, don't call us, we'll call you. But I said, Ron, let me, you know, look at the market and get back to you. And so I used my instincts again at market size and share. So I uh, did a close survey on the Edmonton market, and it appeared to me that the Wilson Art brand had less than 5% market share. So I presented that to Ron, and he forwarded it down to Texas. And between Ron and another gentleman named Lou Mispero, who is a pretty fantastic guy that worked for a corporate in Wilson Art, they came up and seen me, and uh, we talked about it. And eventually I became, you know, the distributor for Wilson Art in Edmonton. I mean, that was a, uh, and historically has been a uh, keynote element you know, to our success. But it should be said, too, that when we took it on, there was hardly any market share. So uh, Wilson Art certainly did their part, but we did ours as well to grow the market. And eventually we've become uh, involved with Wilson Art in uh, nine markets from uh, across all of Western Canada and uh, including Hawaii and Reno, Nevada. So been a great relationship what year what year was that that you ended up get, starting out with wilson art roughly yeah it was about 1980 you know we started the company in 78 and then uh the wilson art came along about 1980 wow so you're in you know from 80 to you know really over the next 10 or 15 years you started expanding across canada and you know you end up going from vancouver all the way to winnipeg and then when did you get into the the U.S. market? About 1989, we started to look at some expansion. And originally, I looked at Ontario. And there was a company down there called Meteor Plywood, who were the Wilson Art Distributor in Toronto. And uh, I knew the president and the two major partners there quite well through 
just industry association. Charlie, uh, who's the president, um, you know, I called him and he said, you know, we're selling the company. Have you any interest? So I went down there. We spent some time uh, talking and about value. And, you know, I uh, gave him an offer of what I thought, A, the company was worth and B, what I could afford. Uh, We were pretty close to doing a deal. As a matter of fact, I remember Charlie saying, uh, you know, I think we can do something here. And I got on a plane, went back to Edmonton and I was expecting a follow-up call or communication with him when I got back, and he actually called me when I got back, and he said, gee, we got a guy out of Cleveland's come up here and, you know, uh, knew that we were talking to you, and he said, whatever McKillican's offering, we'll uh, top that. Oh, wow. And uh, Charlie said, I feel really badly, but he said, you know what, we're, this is our livelihood and, you know, so on, and uh, they ended up selling to this company out of Cleveland. And uh, so I, I felt a little bit disappointed, more than a little bit disappointed, but uh, I decided the next week that uh, we were going to look south, you know, into the U.S. instead of Ontario. I didn't know of anybody else for sale. And coincidentally, about that time, you know, I had a bit of an informal board of customers, and I talked to them about, you know, how we might expand our business with them, and several had suggested that we look at the hardware business. And so I started, you know, putting out some feelers in the U.S. for a hardware company. We could have just gone after some hardware lines, but it was obvious that the major hardware vendors that held the key market shares, companies like Bloom and Accuride and Revashelf, Amrock and so forth, uh, they had historic tenured distributors, and so it was near impossible to ever, ever get those lines. So I looked for companies that had those lines, and I found one down in Post Falls, Idaho, which uh, geographically is just a little bit east of Spokane. And a company was called Available Hardware and owned by a, quite a character guy named Bill Heller. Available Hardware, uh, main office in Post Falls, not a big town, but that's where Bill Heller came from. <laughs> uh, but they covered quite a broad market area out of there. But they had recently opened a smaller branch in Seattle, so they were there. And then they had purchased a uh, about a 25-year-old distributor down in Boise, Idaho, so they had three locations. And what was quite unique about Bill Heller and Available Hardware is that even though they weren't huge, I think their sales were about $15 million. Uh, in aggregate, but they, Bill was such a character guy. He was president of U.S. Wholesale Hardware Group, so he knew all of the major vendors. Then they knew him, and so I thought, you know, that by acquiring that company, we would get a at least a visual kind of uh, recognition by all these larger companies. So we ended up doing the deal with Available, and that's how we got in. So we closed that in uh, late 91 into 92, and uh, that was our first entry uh, into the U.S. market. 40 years for McKillican now, I guess in 2018, right? Correct, yeah. You know, if you could go back to a young Gary McKillican starting those first few years in your business, and now with all those years of experience, would you have any anything you'd want to say to yourself that you could have sort of glean some information for a a young guy starting his own company back then? Yeah, well, I guess first thing I would say is, um, you know, be prepared to accept that you're going to make a lot of mistakes. You know, know, I guess at the end of the day, if you're still around after 40 years, they did a few things right too. But uh, I think at the same time, there's a lot of things I would do differently, you know. 
if I had an opportunity, whether it was people issues or some product issues and so forth. That said, though, you know, uh, to respond to your question, I'd say the main thing is, you know, to have focus and, you know, have that focus be as sharp as it can and uh, build your business around a business plan that's based on the market size and uh, what you think you can get out of that market size and put the energy and effort into putting the uh, resources in place to go after that and then, you know, sticking to the knitting, as they say, to uh, discipline yourself, you know, day in and day out. Because a lot of stuff happens, you know, there's interaction with vendors, interaction with customers and employees and a lot of things going on. And it's important that you keep, you know, the vision of what you're, you know, going for, what you're trying to do. And, you know, long before, you know, we had a well-defined mission statement or, you know, the the kind of vision that we might have today, we did have this notion of serving the customer, serving the corporation, and serving our people in the corporation. So I knew those were all connected. In other words, if if the uh, customer thought we were value to them, you know, there was some loyalty there. If the company was doing well enough, it could afford to keep going. And if the employees were doing well by the company, then they were going to treat the customers well. So there was kind of a, you know, a synergy there. That was always in the back of my mind. And I would recommend that young people, you know, keep that in mind. I was in the warehouse today with our IT manager. And, you know, I don't bump into him out in the warehouse much. But he said, what are you doing out here? And I said, well, I've been in the company 40 years. And I said, I can hardly remember a day. In that 40 years, I haven't walked through the warehouse and looked at all the products because that's what we do. That's what the customers look for us for. And I said, these people that are in the warehouse laying the orders up, I said, they're pretty important to the company. You know, I used to be one of them, so I know what it's like being on the other end wondering when management walks out if they even know what your name is. But uh, I can guarantee you I know all our people's names and what they contribute, but from a customer's viewpoint, you know, they see basically, they touch primarily three people. They, t- You know, the, the truck driver delivers it. Uh, the warehouse man lays it up. So, you know, he, if, if they deliver the material on time, if the warehouse materials picked and packed and shipped it correctly, and then they deal with the order desk, and that order desk person is customer service uh, rep, as we call them today, but it's so significant in the relationship with the customer. Salesman has a role there, but those three descriptions I just gave you are the key ones to the customer. Salesmen, for the most part, are delivering information. You know, there's a little bit of persuasion involved in selling uh, in this industry, but most of, them, most of it's delivering information. What do you got? When can I get it? How much is it? Those are the three basic questions. Uh, you know, if salesman's really on his game and he d- asks for the order and doesn't get it, he might say why, you know, and then try to answer the objection and overcome it and come back with some persuasive element. But as I said, the uh, the guy delivering it, the guy laying it up, and the guy taking the order and having the relationship inside is really fundamental to the wholesale building material business. So that w- that would be my advice to a young guy is, Keep your eye on those things and make sure they're finely tuned because that's how you're going to be judged. Kind of along that point, do you find, uh, I mean, obviously technology's come along and things are done differently, but is there the wholesale distributor 
you know, what's the future of that? It's kind of, it's disappearing a little bit in certain market segments with more direct to customer type stuff. Is there sort of a uh, state of the industry that you see kind of transitioning into, you know, down the road as we move forward? Well, that's a, you know, I mean, that's a great question as well, because the industry is changing. It's not only like the recession or that stemmed from 2008, but I think just in any evolution of any industry, there's changes they're always going on. Some periods of time make them more marked than others. But our industry is changing uh, dramatically from a lot of the same forces that are affecting all industries. Part of that is that there's a tremendous surge towards amalgamation. There's fewer, there's less fragmentation at the wholesale level. More companies are being bought out. Uh, those companies are trying to secure bigger market shares, so they, they're more competitive in a lot of ways. They're getting into product areas they might not have been in previously to sustain growth. A lot of the bigger ones that you know have grown on the basis of acquisition, they've almost got to continue to acquire companies to support their growth. There's not enough organic growth out there to feed the type of results that are required for, you know, things like public companies and so forth that they have to show to their shareholders. So a lot of those things are putting pressures. From the other side, you've got the manufacturers who, uh, you know, they they have the same growth aspirations and the better ones are adding uh, manufacturing capabilities in the their core products, but also expanding into other products that may be peripheral within their uh, classification, but still that's creating more and more competition. And it's also putting more pressure on the distributor because they're having to accept that package of product and uh, not only finance it, but have the sales abilities uh, as well as physical warehouse abilities and trucking and all the rest to, you know, take on that expanded line. So the wholesale building material industry is not one where you see a lot of new players. And the reason for that is it's very cash intensive. Not a lot of new guys coming, but there's several old guys going, if you like. So I, I see that trend staying, that there's going to be fewer and fewer. The manufacturers uh, used to sell everything through distributors, and today they have certain portions of the market they take direct. A lot of companies might sell Home Depot Direct, for example, or the large furniture manufacturers in the Michigan market and other areas direct, the office furniture folks. So there are several segments that now distributors no longer service. Uh, so distributors are having to be nimble. They're having to look at, you know, where they fit. And then if you add to that, you know, the elements like Chinese production coming in, whether it's raw product or now with more focus from the Chinese on selling RTI products, you know, into the market. Every time there's a Chinese kitchen sold in the market, whether it's ready to assemble or whether it's assembled, uh, that takes some market away from the local, you know, cabinet shop who knows, used to buy from the wholesale distributor. So I think distributors are going to have to continue to position themselves and probably move up channel in some products, stay where they are, but to be able to adapt to, you know, the new market realities. And then you layer technology and all that, and some aspects of the business like hardware now are 
40 to 50% of the total business for a distributor is done online. You've got distributors that are selling cross territories because their customers are buying online and so forth. So that'll all continue to evolve. So like any situation where there's change, I think the better companies will adapt and make the changes necessary. But, uh, you know, it isn't getting any easier. A little more exciting, too. You've kind of taken on a little bit different role in the last... When did you sort of step back a little bit and sort of take a different role in the companies? I've been about six years now or so. Well, I stepped down as president of the company uh, six years ago, five and a half years ago, and brought in a great guy, Jamie Barnes, who had been with the company for a number of years and worked through a number of uh, various positions uh, with ever greater responsibilities. So uh, that... You know, I felt very comfortable with that, and I moved into the CEO role, but I had no expectations or desire to retire, and I moved more into the planning areas and spent more time, you know, ensuring we had uh, good business plans, looking at, as you said in the last question, down the road, you know, what do we need to do in the future to ensure that, you know, the company is uh, uh, on solid ground. So, you know, over the last five years, I developed a new division for the company that we haven't been involved in before, selling to new market segments. Uh, We're a very significant supplier now to Home Depot in California and Texas, some other states upcoming. That business hadn't really been part of our history, but over the last uh, few years has become more of our uh, addition. That's not our focus. We still focus on our as-is customers, the ones we've been with for 40 years, but we've added the the retail sector is, you know, growing part of our business as well. Is that what you've kind of settled on is for you being the most satisfying? Um, you know, when you go to get excited to go into the offices, sort of building these ideas that can kind of generate growth and seeing them kind of come to life? Yeah, uh, there's no doubt about it. I mean, we do these Everybody that, uh, you know, is in a senior role in a company does, we do a profile and uh, uh, by a company called Caliper out of New Jersey and, and Toronto. But, uh, you know, so you get a pretty good idea what kind of profile you have. And, you know, uh, I'm creative and, uh, you know, I've got a high sense of urgency. And believe me, i got some things on the other end of the scale, too. i got to make sure I've got some detail people around me because I tend to not be as detailed as I would like to be sometimes. But that said, you know, my MO, so to speak, is, you know, for growth, I get the most satisfaction out of developing plans that can grow the organization and give opportunities to our people and our vendors and customers. Great. Well, I think that's the, you do anything else you want to throw in there? Anything else you got to add? Well, I really don't. I, uh, you know, appreciate the opportunity to be here and, and to have this chat with you. Pretty excited to have our first guest on the podcast. I think it was a great way to kick off the show. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thank you, Chris. Well, thanks for tuning in, everybody, to the Roots and Builders podcast. Going to be some more great episodes upcoming, and you can follow along at rootsandbuilders.com, and you can find out more about McKillican at mckillican.com and on all the regular social media platforms. All right, have a great day. See you later. Bye.